Ike Publishing Media presents the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen, Episode 11, Stranded. Happy Tuesday, my name is Ben, and I hope you guys had a productive year. It's funny re-listening to last season again. I thought I'd have something for you guys before summer, but then about a dozen major life events happened in succession. Hopefully that will wrap up with my having jury duty of all things next week. Yeah, that's the kind of year we're talking about. One of those events I mentioned earlier awarded me a new space to execute this podcast. In the end, it will turn out to be a good thing, but for the recording of this current episode, it was a technical disaster. Anyone who's recorded sensitive audio knows that changing locations can change your overall sound entirely. Call me a perfectionist, and of course I'm always learning more about recording audio, but I like to at least present a consistent product despite the mistakes and awkward silences. Forgive me the occasional error this go-around, and I'll see you on the other side of Jonathan Tabith's nightmarish experiences on the planet of Alondronon. Oh, and like many of the episodes in this series, there is a bit of what some would call graphic violence. This one might go a bit further. Fair warning now, it gets a bit hairy. Jonathan Tabith has crash-landed the starship Enigma on an unknown planet. After the Enigma was sucked into a spontaneous black hole, the survivors made a last-ditch effort to evacuate the ship before Jonathan could land it safely on the planet's surface. More than half of the Enigma's crew died during the event. Now that the starship Enigma has fallen, the survivors must reunite while facing the primal perils of the planet's wilderness in sheer size. Will the natives welcome the Enigma survivors with open arms, or have the humans of Earth become soft with their technology, so complacent that we would seem a far inferior species to a powerful race that is still in the dark ages of imperialism? 1. When Gelter, the gate watchman of the gate north of Crisius, opened his eyes, he didn't expect to see the king's son, Lord Jorah Crisius, upon his white horse approaching with an army the size of Narsus trailing over the hills to the south. Jorar wore Crisius's royal blue sash over the plate mail that his father had worn into battle during the last war, and the gold prince's crown upon his head of dark brown hair. He had made an appearance shortly after Gelter had fallen asleep since the weird object traced over the Deadlands a few hours prior. Gelter liked watching the gate, but since no one traveled to the north after the war, he usually just slept in the watchman's booth. Open the gate, watchman! Jorar called. Gelter flinched. He had only opened the gate two or three times since he was old enough to work in Fort Vation, a few miles to the west of Crisius along the mountain range of Bilal's Scar. Grabbing the crankshaft, Gelter pulled it around the wooden frame and set the lock. The heavy gate of stacked lumber swung open with the ratchet mechanisms at the hinges, creaking to a halt at 90 degrees. The threshold in its entirety was large enough to allow the swift passage of hundreds on horseback. The Faranites have somehow launched a missile, said Jorar. It nearly struck the capital city of Crisius. We've been ordered by King Jimson Crisius to clear the area of all potential Faranite forces. Leave the gate open for our return. This shouldn't take long. Jorar scowled as the army moved through the gate before him. If Jorar seemed upset, it was because no one liked traveling through the Deadlands. It was haunted by the perpetual doom of the Faranites. 2. Jonathan woke to a lavender evening sky peering through the cracked window above. He felt like he'd been spun through a G-force endurance tester a few times. His chest hurt as if a 200-pound weight was forcing him down. Taking off his seatbelt, Jonathan fell out of his seat and down to the back of the first floor. Gravity was no longer on his side in the bridge, meaning that the Enigma had lost all power. His child was officially dead other than the still-beating heart of its core. He took a moment to collect himself and found the kit he had put together earlier. Someone was supposed to come for him, so he needed to get outside and wait for their arrival. Climbing through the door to engineering, Jonathan gaped at the still-radiating core. 
It had survived the impossible. Jonathan clambered to the doorway that once led to the observation deck. He pulled the blast door open and stepped out onto a stone platform overseeing a vast deserted clay necropolis built into the side of the narrow mountain beneath the setting afternoon sun. The temperature was a tolerable 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Birds cawed as they erupted from somewhere within the many levels and layers that descended deeper into the city's heart. Clay houses filled the lower city all the way to a crumbling town wall about a mile away. The sun bled through the cloud cover, making the sky of the western horizon a blood-red color. When Jonathan turned around, he saw the nose of his ship riding up the side of the towering mountain formation that loomed over the decrepit remains of a civilization long forgotten. The rest of the enigma was scattered throughout the massive trench that his crash landing had created. The bridge, engineering hall, and flight dock were all that was left. Jonathan heard the roaring engine of one of the Enigma's hawks nearby. Birds cawed as they erupted from somewhere within the many layers and levels that descended deeper into the city's heart. The wind threatened to blow him down as the hawk buzzed overhead and began to scout for a place to set down. Jonathan looked over the edge of the platform into the darkness below. It was an eight-foot drop to the next story. Jonathan jumped down, landing on his heels hard enough to feel the spritz of pain shoot up and down his legs. He climbed down to the next level using the ornamental etching in the wall as a ladder. He felt winded at the bottom. Being on a vessel capable of addressing his every need meant that he was more out of shape than he felt comfortable admitting to himself. He jogged between the building structures that shaded the lower levels of this part of the city, watching the hawk touch down in an intersection ahead. The hood opened and Patrick Tull, a young flight officer, climbed out. He checked his scanner and turned toward Jonathan. His eyes flicked up and the two saw one another. Jonathan? Patrick called. He pulled out his flashlight and shined it in Jonathan's direction. Patrick, it's me, Jonathan called. The moment the words left his lips, Patrick turned around and swore. He went for the pistol at the holster in his belt but wasn't quick enough. A pale, deformed creature about Patrick's size plowed into him, knocking him to the ground and out of sight. Jonathan stopped running. He watched in horror as six more of the creatures swarmed over the fallen man. Jonathan could only see the end of Patrick's boot as he writhed and kicked. Blood spatters flecked the dusty floor around the mouth of the intersection as the things consumed Patrick Tull. Jonathan went to prepare his manica, but it wasn't working. The interface flashed, meaning it had gotten damaged during the crash. It needed to be reset, but that would require enough time and focus to sift through the toolkit for the right screwdriver. He crept into the shadows of the alcove between the buildings as the creatures uttered guttural screeching sounds. There, he waited until the sun had moved past the skyline of clay buildings, casting the whole city in darkness. Of all the places to land, why here? Jonathan buried his face in his hands, thinking of Patrick, another casualty gone as Elizabeth had gone, with no one to witness their untimely end save for Jonathan. Once he was certain that the vicious creatures had deserted the area, Jonathan moved quietly to the mouth of the alcove. He saw Patrick's ravaged ribcage. The creatures had feasted on his vital organs and skinned most of the flesh from his face. Only one of his hazel eyes remained. His mouth gaped in a disgusted snarl. Jonathan had little doubt that they would be back to finish him off once they got hungry again. Jonathan was able to tear Patrick's belt from the weight of his body. He put the belt and holster around his waist and withdrew the forty-four pistol to examine it. Movement caught his eye. Jonathan's gaze moved up to one of Patrick's murderers with Patrick's blood smeared over its mask. It was a stringy corpse of a being, thin with an ornate bone mask positioned on its bizarrely misshapen head. He was tall but hunched over, lanky in figure. Its arms were half the width but twice the length of a human's arms. Jonathan bent his knees and raised the pistol. He clutched it tightly in both hands as he had trained. Clicking the safety off, he aimed at the thing's face. Thumbing the hammer, Jonathan's breath went from his chest. He fired. 
The bullet cracked the thing's shell-like helmet, ricocheting into the wall. The sound was deafening as it echoed and reverberated through the city. Jonathan fired again, blowing the creature's mask and head to smithereens. Its thin body collapsed, spilling purple blood from where its shoulders once met. A perpetual ringing filled his ears. He didn't want to stick around to see if the things would find him, so Jonathan shoved the pistol in its holster and jogged from the alcove into the street. Looking right, he saw at least twelve of the creatures scurrying from the direction of Patrick's ship toward him. Jonathan turned around and sprinted up the stairs to his left. Once he reached the top of the steps, twenty of the monstrosities headed him off. Jonathan went right, fearing that he'd be trapped from not two but three different directions. He figured he'd jump if it came to that, but for now he was able to run along the road leading between the large clay buildings and a wall of ornate stone archways. Up ahead, the debris of a collapsed building blocked the left side of the path. Jonathan wove right, sparing a glance over his shoulder. A mess of the bastards filled the streets as they burst after him. Some wielded gnarled metal parts that looked like pieces of the Enigma. Some hurried ahead of the pack on all fours. Jonathan raced down the avenue as the path sloped down into the valley of what was once a bustling marketplace, now a massive deserted square of buildings and bones. There were bones that looked like human and bones that looked like they could belong to the things with the weird helmets. The whole city was nothing but a graveyard and was now home to the broken carcass of the Enigma. Suppose I couldn't have picked a more appropriate place to finish her off, Jonathan spoke to himself. Sweat poured down his face as he slowed and slapped his knees. The creatures were far behind, but they were still coming. Jonathan took a second to unzip his uniform and tie the sleeves around his waist. The creatures screeched to one another in their creepy, otherworldly dialect. He had to move. Jonathan entered the desolate marketplace. Empty buildings towered around him. He shot a look over his shoulder, and that's when his boot came down on a mesh net of ropes. He saw a surge of the eerie monstrosities hit the base of the steps, and the net was around him. It sacked him up off the ground before he could do anything. The pistol and kit fell from his grasp, both clattering to the stone floor beneath the trap. It was over. They were going to do to him what they did to Patrick, rip him apart piece by piece, eat his skin and insides, and probably eat the rest of him periodically throughout the next twelve hours. He would be a corpse in less than five minutes. Jonathan looked at his manica. It had shut off entirely. Without the kit below, he couldn't reset it or use any of the many utensils on the inside, a design flaw that had cost him his life. A horn rang out from somewhere, chilling Jonathan's innards. This was the last sound he would ever hear. He wondered how it came to this, remembering being safe and sound on the Enigma right outside his home solar system not long ago. He remembered the feeling of being content and satisfied with his life, and recognized how far there is to fall. The ignorant person that thought he had conquered the universe by delving into its darkest places, that person was now dead. How foolish could he have been to think that he would have accounted for everything? More of the masked creatures emerged from the buildings throughout the marketplace. There were now hundreds of them, and they converged on the square where Jonathan was hanging helplessly. The creatures gathered beneath him, cawing and clucking in their otherworldly chicken language that was impossible to understand. Some yipped and screeched with excitement as they threw garbage at him. A metal bar struck Jonathan in the ribs, a piece of wood, a loose stone from the road. He was getting tenderized before an uproar rolled through the crowd of monsters like a wave in the ocean. It crashed to the creatures below. The calls of men filled the air. Jonathan had been preparing for his death, but when he opened his eyes, he saw through the net a barrage of men on horseback charging through the horde of monstrosities. They carried spears and swords and wore plate mail like medieval knights. They clashed with the beings and began slaying them with ease. Harhuken fellow knights, a warrior called from below. Jonathan watched the sea of horsemen cut through the beasts, spilling dark purple blood. He stared wide-eyed as the men brutally desecrated the whole populace of beings without question. It was so routine, like they'd done it a million times. 
Several of the men stood beneath the trap, staring at Jonathan suspiciously. Yala man, talavista, chesna man, glasalon. The speaker paused. Questadink, c'est la questadink? He gestured at Jonathan. Sivala man, fenetesenok, oslo matalon, o telvaidalon? Another asked. They were speaking with human-like tonal inflections, the rise and fall of audio conversation. The man looked up and met Jonathan's eyes. They were human, here, on another planet. He was meeting a species just like his own for the first time in human history. Talaman salvalo trap renadaso supensio costacar jolorkisius, the first speaker said. The men had polished off the last of the lanky monsters. The disheveled stone square was covered with purple blood. The hoofs and fetlocks of the horses were purple and everyone had purple splatters all over them. A circle of ten or so had formed around Jonathan, one of the men wearing a crown. He wore a royal blue sash over his chest. He was clearly the leader of this faction. The man dismounted his horse and motioned at Jonathan. Forn him rocos, the crowned man said, staring at Jonathan through narrowed eyes. Jonathan blinked, swearing he could understand every other word coming out of the leader's mouth. One of the men climbed up the wooden rig and cut the rope holding the net. Jonathan's heart shrieked in his chest as he free fell. The men caught him and lowered him to the stone floor. Another soldier with long brown hair cut open Jonathan's binding and pulled him to his feet. Rico, what glimtame do you prohail? The crowned leader asked. He was several inches shorter than Jonathan and stood with the pompous air of a prince. Jonathan could understand a little of what the man was saying. What? Jonathan shook his head. His rescuers exchanged looks of confusion. What? The man with the long hair said, furrowing his brows. What? The prince stared at Jonathan. What? One of the soldiers waved his finger at Jonathan knowingly. Tell Visa what we called interesting. Interesting, Jonathan pointed at him and said, but a completely different word left his mouth. Interesting, he repeated in the other language. He knew that people who live with a language that isn't their own for long enough are capable of seemingly spontaneously picking up the other language. This usually happened over the span of months or years, not after a few moments of conversation. What's interesting? the prince asked, glaring at him. That I can understand you and you can understand me. I've only heard you speak a little, Jonathan replied in the other tongue. The men surrounding Jonathan didn't seem to think it was as interesting as he did. The leader grabbed Jonathan's left forearm and pulled up his sleeve. When the man saw nothing, he dropped Jonathan's arm and turned to the nearby soldier. He looks very scrawny to be much of a contender in the Virago, said the prince. He'll probably get killed in the first round. I do hate vagrants, and it is the law to arrest them. Which town did they take you from, and where did you get that ridiculous outfit? Jonathan considered the situation. He would need to choose his next words carefully. I found it on a traveler, he said, wincing. His stomach began to churn. You look like no man I've ever seen. The man with the long brown hair crossed his large arms over his chest plate. From where do you hail? I, um... Jonathan bit his lip. The prince gave a disgruntled huff. It doesn't matter. He's obviously lost whatever's left of his mind. Take him so we can get out of here. He turned around and started back to his horse. Jonathan thought about protesting, but he didn't have any answers for these people that would make sense to them. In their eyes, everything he said was insanity. And it was. Based on what Jonathan had seen so far, they wouldn't know what to make of a person coming from space. It would be like someone from another planet coming to Earth in the 8th century, claiming that they came from an advanced civilization. What's this? One of the soldiers picked up Jonathan's pistol in one hand and the kit in the other. Jonathan thought about grabbing for it, but they might see that as a threat. Careful, it's loaded. Jonathan nodded at the pistol. He tried to go for it, but the soldier pushed him back. Tie him up and throw him on the back of Shet's horse, one of the men said. Let him smell the stink for the ride home. Maybe that will spur him to give us some honest answers once we return to Chryseus. 
We found something strange near Drogon's Ford. It's the missile, but it's clear Fahrenheit's, a soldier told the prince nearby. What should we do with the missile? Leave it, said the prince. Our orders were to make sure that the fort is clear of Fahrenheit's. While that was hardly a formidable group, we've done as we were asked. Let's get back. They tied Jonathan up and hoisted him onto the back of a particularly smelly steed with a scrawny rider that looked like he was wearing armor a size too large. Jonathan couldn't help but notice the priority shift in a place like this. On Earth, an object fallen from space would be of the utmost importance. This society was so far back, the resources so misunderstood, that the soldiers didn't even care that the secret to monumentally progressing their society was lying in a smoking heap at the base of a fort that they had deemed permanently abandoned. The army fell into formation and filed through the front gate of the city. Jonathan's ass, legs, and pelvis began to hurt. He had hurtled through space at millions of miles per hour, but had never ridden a horse. The lavender evening sky glimmered over the gulf on their right as they wound around its bank toward a hilly region to the south. The landscape reminded Jonathan of the stories of the old frontier land 600 years prior on Earth, with trees cropping up here and there like broccoli. Trees had become a rare sight on Earth, at least trees that hadn't been artificially engineered to absorb larger amounts of carbon dioxide and release larger amounts of oxygen. They traveled well into the night. Jonathan wondered if they would stop to make camp or keep going until sunrise. He remembered the schematics of the planet, how it was the size of Jupiter. If that was the case, then the days and nights were probably much longer on this planet. Thinking about this made him wonder why he didn't weigh more than twice his weight on Earth. It didn't add up. He hated not knowing why. Jonathan's stomach churned again. His mind began to race. His mouth became dry and his eyes watered like he was in the midst of an extreme illness. He felt certain he was going to vomit, but a jolt from the horse caused him to choke it back. He lost hearing in both ears. His sinuses clogged and he became so sick that he was delusional. At one point, Jonathan hopped down and vomited the little bit of food that was in his stomach before his guard hauled him back onto the horse. A horrible fear that he hadn't anticipated crept into his mind. What if the bacteria here was at such an advanced state that someone with an unconditioned immune system like Jonathan's would be susceptible to that dangerously evolved bacteria? What if being around all these people was exposing him to that contagion? His manica was out, so he had no defense and no resistance to whatever the environment threw at him. As the army marched on, two different colored moons, one violet, the other an orange-red grapefruit color, peered down on the forested valley spreading across the country ahead of them. Jonathan lolled on the back of his horse, feeling the tickling of insects skittering up his pant legs. As they entered the forest, wildlife fled from the sight of them. Some animals looked identical to those of Earth. Others looked strange and unique to the planet's evolutionary conditioning. Fox-like creatures with multiple tails bounded through the woodland. Hulking bison-like herds mold in pens near farmhouses, and large, shelled creatures roamed the riverside. The horses galloped between the trees, picking up in pace as the earth sloped downhill. The orange glow of the moon gleamed through the branches and shined in hallowed rays onto the forest floor. Fireflies sparked into existence around them as gnats and flies swarmed through the air in schools. Oh, Chryseus lies beyond the bank! The quartermaster of the army called as the horses descended and splashed through a shallow creek. They exited the shade of the forest into a large field where the horses broke into a full-speed gallop. In the distance ahead, the tower Jonathan had passed when he brought the Enigma down swam into view. It was monumentally larger from the ground than it had seemed from the air. As they made for the massive structure, it grew to be the width of two dozen stadiums and the height of some of Earth's tallest skyscrapers. Jonathan had never seen anything like it before in his life. Torches covered the city like a giant black birthday cake. The castle on its top gleamed in the moonlight until they were too close to the tower to see it anymore. Traffic surrounded the base of Chryseus. Merchant tents, wagons, and livestock were splayed along the sides of the road. The army followed the path past the city entrance and entered the stables. 
A long, shaded opening etched into the side of the tower housed thousands of horse canals. Stable hands were everywhere. Once Jonathan's rider hitched the horse, Jonathan was secured in shackles and hauled to a doorway presumably leading to the dungeons. Jonathan saw words written in places, but he couldn't understand what anything meant. Wherever he was being taken, it seemed to be a routine destination as no one gave orders or directed them where to go. They descended the steps to a deserted narrow corridor with cell doors lining the walls. His stomach continued to make sickly gargling noises. He tried to stop and rest, but his captors tugged him on until they approached the desk of a short man wearing a nice pair of slacks and a fine royal blue doublet over his tan shirt with a red tie at his throat. Prisoner? The short man looked at the soldier. Vagrant. The Deadlands. Found at twilight after he was taken hostage by the Fahrenites, said the soldier whose name Jonathan had heard but couldn't remember. Borago fodder. The small man considered Jonathan. King Chryseus likes his champions about three times this one's size. He looks ill. I'll submit him for euthanization. No, the soldier said, taking off his helmet. His long, sweaty black hair fell down over the rounded metal shoulders of his armor. Let him try his luck in the Virago. If he lives, he'll be shipped to Ire with the rest of the sludge. Food for real champions. For Jonathan, this conversation happened in a droning monotone. His ears were plugged with mucus and his eyes were watering badly. Snot ran from his nose. Whatever his ailment, it was ticking each of his glands off one by one. His whole body felt swollen and puffy. The man behind the counter gave Jonathan a look of disgust. Get him to the Gortrow. The soldier pushed him toward a set of steps leading deeper underground. As they descended, Jonathan could feel the thrumming of movement vibrating through the stone surrounding them. Fear filled him to the core as the walls thinned to an ornate stone grating, allowing him to see into the large room below. A huge bowl of fire roared in the middle of a massive stone platform. Hundreds of naked, broken men were sprawled on the steps below, groaning, their stomachs so empty one could see the sharp ridges of their ribcages. Dozens of prisoners wearing tattered loincloths and rags sparred in different corners of the hall. And then there was the river. Hundreds of people were crowded around a wide, slow-moving moat, drinking, showering, and urinating in the water that was dirty brown from the perpetual exposure to sewage and waste. Jonathan had landed on a world at a time where sanitation was not a priority. The thieves, rapists, and lawbreakers were packed into the most inhumane environments imaginable and then pitted against one another for sport. It was the Roman Empire at its most barbaric stages, a technological setback for Jonathan of over 3,000 years, and also the place where his life was doomed to end. There was a gate guard wearing a lighter grade of mail than the soldier that brought Jonathan in. The two seemed to know one another. They exchanged words that Jonathan could not hear over the shouting and wailing of prisoners in addition to his other sensory disadvantages. The gate guard opened the door. The soldier pushed Jonathan onto the uneven stone floor of the inner prison. He stumbled and fell down. Jonathan turned around and saw the soldier making his way back up the stairs until he passed out of sight. A man in rags wielding a club crept around from the slabs of stone nearby, watching Jonathan curiously. Jonathan worked as hard as his exhausted and frail body would allow, but could no longer carry his own weight. He remained on his hands and knees, struggling just to breathe before he collapsed on his stomach. Bruto, the gate guard called and motioned at Jonathan. A fellow prisoner approached. He had meaty arms that made him look capable of ripping Jonathan in half. He patted Jonathan down, searching for hidden items, treasures from the outside that might be used for some other purpose down here in this place that looks startlingly close to Jonathan's personal idea of hell. Bruto found the manico on his left wrist. He tried to pry it off Jonathan's arm, but couldn't. Several other people with grimy fingers and wild facial hair took Jonathan's shoes and pants along with his shirt that had been wrapped around his waist. He wore only his otherworldly trousers and could hardly breathe, let alone ward off the prisoners who had become so accustomed to this way of life that he couldn't stop them if he tried. 
Part of him wanted to feel humiliated, but his physical misery spared him that discomfort. With nothing left but the odd brace around Jonathan's wrist, Bruto hoisted Jonathan over his shoulder and carried him over a wooden bridge. He dropped Jonathan on one of the steps next to the older starving prisoners beside the fire pit and walked off. 3. As Jonathan dazed in and out of consciousness, more people tried to get the manica from his wrist. One man bent over with the intention of chewing Jonathan's arm off before his companions turned on him, the three biting, kicking, and scratching at one another like a pack of hungry dogs. A few are more subtle, attempting to open the band the way they would a locked door. Once they found that their cause was futile, they gave up and left. He halfway believed that after losing and regaining consciousness, he'd be looking at the stump of his left arm, but the other prisoners either did not have the means to do this or didn't believe the cause worth the effort. Several fights broke out between the other inmates, drawing attention away from Jonathan. The night drew on in a horrible daze of agony for him. He had never been in such extreme physical discomfort in his life. When he coughed or drew breath, the muscles in his chest, stomach, and abdomen contracted in pain. The roughness of the stone platform beneath him cut and scraped into his ribs. The mucus clogging his nose, ears, and throat felt like it was also invading his lungs. For the first time in his short but eventful life, Jonathan wanted only to die. In the early morning, a group of prisoners from another city arrived. They were so enraged by their perpetual captivity, so packed with adrenaline, that a small war broke out between the inmates who could stand on two feet in the new arrivals. Jonathan was awake for long enough to witness the raw skirmish that claimed the lives of at least fifteen men. Piss, feces, and gore ran down the stone slabs toward the river. The scavengers descended on the defeated corpses, looting shoes, rags, teeth, and even going so far as to steal bones. Bones to file down to shivs, anything they could use. They were monkeys looking for tools. So human it was frightening. Jonathan woke after being out for what felt like a long time. When he looked around, he didn't see anybody except the soldier guarding the ramp to the castle. The mess from the night still stained the path in front of the entrance to the prison. Some of the starved bodies remained by the fire, but none of them were moving. He sat up, his muscles feeling a little more relaxed. It still hurt to breathe, but not as painfully as before. The mucus had miraculously cleared. His stomach growled for the first time in days. He got to his feet and looked around. The crackle of the fire echoed through the empty hall. Jonathan made his way toward the steps where the soldiers stood guard. Where is everyone? Jonathan asked as best as he could in the other dialect. Rations at the end of the river. Eat what you can before the virago begins, he said in a deep voice. Where are we? Jonathan asked. The soldier glanced at him from under his helmet. You're in the Gortrow. There's nothing below you except the catacombs, which is a place reserved for the honored dead. That's you over there, rat meat. He pointed over at the corpses whose faces had been smashed and bloodied. Vermin crowded the bodies, eager to do their part for the order of things in this vile ecosystem. Everything gets used and nothing gets wasted while the prisoners bathe in the fecal byproduct of the dead. Jonathan could think of nothing more repulsive than this place. What city is this? Jonathan asked. Any knowledge is good knowledge. The tower city Crisius, named after King Jimson Crisius. This land is known as Pafane. And the... Jonathan rolled his wrist. He didn't know their word for planet or world. No one had said anything like that to him. Where are we? The region of Alacrity in the middle of the continent of Shartan. You keep saying names, but what sky, what place, what ground is this? Jonathan asked, feeling as frustrated as the guard was confused. Chrysius, he stated once more. No, Jonathan mopped his face with his hand. The, the sun shines on, he said. The sun shines above. The sun above shines on where? Ah, the guard nodded. The planet of Alondradon. Every baby and cave dweller knows that. 
I was never either on this planet, Jonathan said, feeling that honesty wouldn't matter to this particular individual. Was he going to think Jonathan was crazy? Everyone in the Gortrow was crazy or would be inevitably. The guard didn't seem phased by the information. Jonathan followed the guard's instruction to where the food rations were being given out. It was the only time all the prisoners worked in an orderly fashion. There were also 20 guards positioned on balconies several levels above with crossbows aimed at them. Jonathan approached and stood at the back of the line. Virago soon, the man in front of him nodded. My ticket out of this hell. He had long brown hair and gray eyes. His cheeks were deeply pitted with scars. What's the Virago? Jonathan asked. The man only looked at him for a moment, deeming the question unworthy of an answer. What did you do to end up here? I, Jonathan thought about this. He hadn't done anything other than be in the wrong place at the wrong time, a happenstance that has claimed many lives in primitive societies throughout history. Was it pretentious to believe that only earthlings could be tyrannical, inhumane, and foolish about its civilian majority? Jonathan decided that it had to be, primarily for the ease with which a ruling class can manipulate and control lesser societal classes. And unless the society is already enlightened, even Earth's population was far from enlightened, rulers feel that the only way to convey their ideas and views is through brute force, believing in the unspoken law that no one ever accomplished anything great by being kind. Unfortunately, it didn't matter what he did or didn't do. His status was undefined, and that was as good as being a criminal to the lord of this region. Jimson Crisius. His name even sounded like that of a dictator. The man shrugged at Jonathan's lack of answer. I killed my Marita. The Matrix was sleeping with my brother. Your wife? Jonathan tried to clarify. Yes, the man said, looking at Jonathan curiously as the line inched forward. I end up here while my brother continues to futo with one of my best friends. Ulto, I demand, except I'll be dead before I ever leave these walls. What's your brother's name? Jonathan asked. Rourke, the man said in a cold voice before he spat. I would eat the eyes directly out of his skull. Of course, the great Labitna will suffice. Labitna? Jonathan asked. Virago, the man smiled. Death, Culpa, brother. Culpa? Criminal? Weak-minded? Guilty? Jonathan asked. The man shrugged. Jonathan was beginning to understand why he was getting the language, and the reason astounded him. Much of the Alondranon language was derived primarily from Latin root words, just like English. He had taken Latin in college and for a long time didn't think he remembered any of it, but he was recalling the information as well as incorporating it at a remarkable rate. How did the Alondrons form and evolve towards the same linguistic communications as on Earth? As they moved closer, Jonathan could see a large cauldron on a platform with guards standing watch nearby. A guard in the center ladled a soupy broth into a bowl and handed each bowl to one of the inmates. Another guard gave each prisoner a slice of bread and that was all. Once the prisoners finished the soup, they were to deposit their bowl in a large wagon on a wooden stand held up by a pulley system that presumably lifted the stage to a kitchen. Jonathan noted this as a potential escape. He reached the front of the line and received his bowl and bread. The bread was hard on one side and beginning to show discoloration on the other. He forced it down. The soup tasted like nasty water, the vegetables floating around within clearly turning. He managed half the bowl before he gave the rest to another prisoner. They all looked the same, and had the same miserable expression carved into their faces. The food had provided little, if any, sustenance, but every man still alive later would be back for more. Once everyone had deposited their bowls, the prisoners were rounded up like cattle and channeled down a narrow path toward a small arena where a tall man wearing a royal blue tunic stood. He rested his palm lazily upon a sword and it scabbard at his hip. His mustache and beard were graying and his eyes were a dark shade of green. He wore a crown on his head, but it was much taller and more tarnished than the prince's. Kneel before King Jimson Crisius, a guard demanded. 
The prisoners, Jonathan included, dropped to one knee. The king stepped forward. Congratulations for having survived this long. Some of you have lived by sheer luck. From here on, you'll be tested on your skill. Those who are not skillful will die, deservedly so. You couldn't survive outside, and you must survive in here if you are ever to reclaim your honor. Bear in mind that only one in thousands will survive long enough to be free, and its price is blood. He paused, pacing before the men. Jonathan glanced up and saw the guards from earlier standing with their crossbows aimed at them. I've always liked to personally pick individuals for my elite group of champions, said the king. I know what makes a man great. I know what makes him a survivor. He continued on. Jonathan stopped listening, partly because he thought King Jim's and Christius was a fool who liked to hear himself talk. The other part of him figured that if he was going to survive, then he needed to get out of this room and get back to the platform with the pulleys. Jonathan glanced at the overhead guards and then dropped his gaze to the men standing in front of him. None of them actually looked like they were paying any attention as the king began ranting of his many successes throughout the years. Who here could really give a damn? Jonathan stood close to the man in front of him with the long black hair and bony shoulders. Start a riot. Draw the guard's attention and I'll make it worth your while, he whispered, still in awe that he was fluently speaking a different language. The man didn't say anything, but he did swallow audibly. After his speech, the king disappeared through a door nearby and re-entered the balcony above. The four men at the front of the line were split into two teams in order to fight until one team or the other was unable to continue. Jonathan already had the next round figured. The survivors from the surviving team were pitted against one another in a brutal battle to the death, a preview of things to come for the king. It would continue on all day until all of the prisoners, except for the distinguished champion, were dead. Jonathan wasn't foolish enough to believe that he could actually survive in that small arena below, but if he could somehow fix his manica, then he could give the illusion of success. The four prisoners began their battle at once. The guards had provided simple weaponry, a sword and shield and an extra longsword. The longsword and shield exchanged owners twice, maiming each of the initial owners before the man on the right slew both his own man and the assistant for his opponent. That received high praise from the king. With the added adrenaline, the successor was able to execute his opponent with ease. Jonathan saw the man in front of him talking to another man. He looked desperate, probably because he saw the futility of the game he was playing. It was a game where there was only one winner and no one else received a second chance. The next round began. The victor of the previous match was the first to die because he opted to keep the longsword over the shimitar and shield. Out of the match, the man with the long black hair got another man into a headlock. The opposing man kicked the legs out of Jonathan's confidant and the two fell to the ground. They rolled between the legs of the prisoners, knocking a few of the others down during the rumble. He didn't wait to find out what happened next. Jonathan turned around and felt his heart hammering in his chest as he jogged up the ramp behind them toward the upper level. He heard shouts, but didn't know or care if they were directed at him. His survival hinged on getting that kit he'd brought from the Enigma. It had traveled with them to this place, so it had to be here somewhere. He saw that the cauldron was still on the platform ahead. Jonathan jumped to the pulley chains and, using a newfound will to survive, he pumped his arms until he reached the vacant kitchen. Glancing down, he saw two guards sprinting past the platform below. They knew. He didn't have time to go searching. The kitchen smelled like sour vegetables. Against the far wall was a giant furnace next to a turnspit. Four long tables stretched across the room with mortars and pestles at the ends. Spoons, knives, and plates covered the countertops. There were three different exits to the kitchen. Jonathan picked one at random and found himself creeping down the hall toward the short man that had received him the night before. He saw a stack of belongings sitting on the side of the desk. The navy blue color of the pack from the Enigma sat atop a stack of older wooden boxes. It was right there within reach. 
he might have time to get it, but getting time to fix the manica was going to be a considerable trick. Jonathan heard a commotion, meaning that the guards were approaching. Jonathan didn't care anymore. He'd run and hide if he had to, but he needed to get that pack. He ran as fast as he could toward the desk. The man looked up and saw him. His mouth fell open at the sight of Jonathan hurrying toward him in nothing but his underpants. Jonathan snatched the pack and immediately felt such a solid pain in his hand that he dropped it. Guards burst into the room as Jonathan tried to retrieve the kit with his other hand, but now the pain was in his head. The man behind the counter was holding a long steel rod and snarling at Jonathan as the guards took hold of each of Jonathan's arms and dragged him back down the hall. Jonathan watched the kit on its side on the floor, feeling the helplessness swim through him. They turned the corner and it was gone. Not only his chance, but his life. It was all over now. They returned to the arena. King Jims and Chrysias and a group of guards were waiting for Jonathan near the entrance. The guards shoved Jonathan to the ground in front of the king. Did you really think you could escape? The king scoffed at him. The guards laughed over his shoulder, like the king was their buddy, their friend. He was just one of the guys today, gambling with the lives of people who don't matter. These people were in the same league as Jonathan, but higher on the chain. Just trying to survive, Jonathan said, letting his skull hang as the king glared down at him. Bruto, the king said. Jonathan looked up and saw the muscular prisoner step forward. You, Virago with this pathetic worm, show him the meaning of power, of strength and ability. End his pathetic existence in the arena. It's more than he deserves. Yes, lord, Bruto bowed. Jonathan remained on his knees. The guards took hold of his arms and dragged him into the Virago. As this was happening, Jonathan could only think of how unfair it all was. He was intelligent enough to create a renewable energy source that could allow for long-distance travel through deep space. If not for the black hole that sucked him and his crew into another part of the universe, he'd have pioneered a whole realm of exploration to humankind that had never before existed. He'd have made history. But here on Alondronon, he was nothing. He could hold the key to faster-than-light travel in his head, and it wouldn't mean a damn thing to the Alondron natives. Bruto would make certain that his life was over in the next few minutes. The guards dropped him. Jonathan fell to his knees, determined not to give anyone the satisfaction of taking whatever honor he had left. The shimitar was lying in the sand about three feet away from him. He could easily grab it. And then what? Fight back? He couldn't fight like this man. Bruto practiced fighting every day of his entire adult life. Besides, if Jonathan grabbed that sword and died, he would be giving the king a show. Let the king have a good show some other day. Jonathan would not give him that pleasure. Grab the sword! Die with honor! The king goaded him. This is what the king believes is honor, Bruto. Jonathan said defiantly as Bruto picked up the spear from the sandy floor. If only every man in this room could see the pathetic creature he really is, perhaps you wouldn't elevate him to the rank of king. Bruto smiled. Loki, it means nothing here. Stand and fight, or I shall be forced to administer the parago. To die standing for yourself is better than dying for nothing on your knees. Better? My death? Your death? Your king's death? It means nothing in the spectrum of the universe. You may execute me whenever you please. Jonathan's heart hammered in his chest as he faced his maker. Rise, fool, the king blathered. Jonathan did not. Finish him, several of the guards jeered. Jonathan met the gaze of the prisoner who had risked his neck for Jonathan's shot at getting the kit. He had two black eyes and several broken teeth. It didn't look like Jonathan would ever get the opportunity to repay that debt. Bruto drew back and Jonathan watched the movement in slow motion. Before Bruto could strike, Chrysius called for him to halt. Everyone looked to Jims and Chrysius, who wore a smug look upon his face. He won't fight? he asked casually. Not so far as I can tell, Lord, Bruto answered. I refuse to believe it, Jimson said, walking forward to look down upon Jonathan, who was still on his knees in defiance. I have always prided myself in knowing how best to motivate people to fight. 
What do they call you from where you're from? Jonathan Tabith, Jonathan said, glaring back at Christius without moving his gaze. He would not be intimidated by this man. You will fight, Jonathan, said Jimson Crisius. He motioned to one of his guards and wiped his nose. Bring them. Jonathan squinted at Crisius, who was now giving Jonathan a malevolent grin that made him look pure evil. He heard the cries and looked around Jimson Crisius' side to see one of the female officers from the Enigma, Lang Thomason, and Stephanie Rowie being pushed into the arena. They had both been stripped to their underwear. Lang's black hair was in disarray and as was Rowie's. Their hands had been chained and they had been collared together. The guard behind them kicked Rowie to her knees, which dropped Lang to her side. You son of a bitch, Jonathan said through gritted teeth. He slowly got to his feet with his fists balled. Bruto stepped between them, pushing Jonathan back. You know them, don't you, Jonathan? Chrysius cooed. Bruto gave Jonathan a bright smile and pointed at the sword in the sand. If you don't fight, he shook his head and shrugged, it won't be good for them. I'll kill you if you touch them, Jonathan yelled to Chrysius, his eyes blazing. You see, I thought you might be persuaded to see things my way, Chrysius smiled. Bruto took hold of Jonathan's neck in one hand and lifted him up off the sandy floor. Jonathan could feel Bruto's honed strength in his grip as the blood flooded to Jonathan's legs. Bruto threw him over to the sword. Jonathan tumbled next to the shimitar, feeling the wind leave his chest from the impact. Jonathan's primal fighting spirit kicked in. He took up the sword and got to his feet, turning around. Yes! Grisius yelled. Now, Bruto, take him down where he stands. Bruto darted forward like a cobra. Jonathan had never understood the nature of physical combat. Two people running high on adrenaline, pummeling one another with whatever weapons they had at their disposal. It was such a primitive thing to do that he never conditioned himself to react appropriately in a violent situation, part of why he created the Manica. Bruto raised his spear over his shoulder. The very action made him look like a monstrous Greek demigod. His muscular physique tightened as the muscles flexed through his chest and through his diaphragm. Bruto's dark eyes fixed on Jonathan's with a cold death gaze, the look of voluntary murder in a man's eyes. It was something Jonathan had never seen up close. The spearhead shot forward beneath Bruto's uncanny dexterity and strength. Jonathan raised the shimitar. Metal sparked with metal, but the strength of the blow sent the shimitar flying over Jonathan's shoulder. Bruto fluidly turned the spear over to the blunt wooden end and rammed it into Jonathan's temple. He felt the pain, unable to register that he had actually been struck. Bruto brought the stick end down on Jonathan's shoulder. It panged his collarbone, causing a vicious snap and sent spritzing numbness through his arm and chest. But Bruto didn't stop there. He slammed the staff across Jonathan's newly vulnerable side, sending him to his knees. Every part of him screamed in agony, but Jonathan stared up into the eyes of the man who was going to end his life. He wanted to see him, to know him, before the end. End it, Bruto, the king called as the rest of the soldiers cheered. Stephanie Rowie was crying uncontrollably. Taking the spear in one hand, Bruto fired the point into Jonathan's stomach, just below the bottom of Jonathan's ribcage. It entered his diaphragm, passing dangerously close to his pancreas, and pierced through his back, spurting blood all over the end of the staff. His blood. He felt the warmth of it running down his side as the sweat of shock covered his back like a wet blanket. Bruto ripped the spear from Jonathan's stomach. All of his strength abandoned him. Jonathan collapsed on his side with a giant hole in his stomach. He tried to hold the blood in like he might be able to put it back somehow, but it was leaving from two different exits. He'd be dead of blood loss in minutes. Jonathan held out his hand to Lang and Rowie, both of whom were in tears as they watched him fall. Weak garbage, Jonathan heard the king say. Bruto smirked and put the toe of his boot under Jonathan's ribs and kicked him to one side of the arena. Fresh blood! Bruto is and always will be your champion! He raised his arms, walking back to the king's side as the soldiers cheered. 
The prisoners gaped at Jonathan, who could never have imagined he was capable of understanding such pain. Why hadn't Bruto killed him? Leaving him alive to bleed to death, there was no honor in that. His body stilled. He felt like a dead spider in the corner of a room, appendages curled to its abdomen. He could feel his heart straining to pump blood without pressure, so like the life support aboard the Enigma as its corpse drifted through space, the blood oxygen escaping helplessly into the endless universe. This is what dying was like. His grandfather had told him to be observant of your death if possible. Watch it, witness it, experience the motion of dying in peace rather than anger, fear, or guilt. Unlike the victims of the Enigma incident, he was actually able to witness this moment. He had a good life, had done things that would progress human civilization in spite of his absence. In that sense, he had done more than anyone on Earth, but it was time to release that ego and move on. As his form went numb, Jonathan could hear the other prisoners fighting in the arena nearby. It became a barrage of monotonous clashes and death cries. Lang screamed louder, and it was the ghastly tune to Jonathan's slow death. Excess amounts of dimethyltryptamine flooded through Jonathan's brain, causing him to hallucinate. He saw lights and shadows, great cities of crisp color and patterns. Huge walls of crisscrossing wires rose around his vision. He had simulated death in his mind hundreds of times, understood the process up to the point of human understanding once the brain and other bodily functions ceased to be. The hallucination should end at that point. Of course, Jonathan's sense of time would be obscured once the chemical hit his brain. But as long as the otherworldly visions lasted, the otherworldly visions did not end with the permanent loss of his consciousness. He opened his eyes when two soldiers hoisted him up. The arena was stained with blood and the corpses of the prisoners that Jonathan had seen earlier. The king, his men, Lang, and Stephanie, the other prisoners, were all gone. The fate of his crewmen was unknown. The man who had tried to help him lay in two pieces in the arena, the upper half still clawing for the broken end of the spear. One of the guards threw Jonathan over their shoulder. Jonathan cried out in pain. The guard dropped him to the ground. He's alive! That's no good, the other said. They won't take him in the incinerator if he's alive, and we'll be in trouble if another shipment arrives and he's still here. If we tell the king, he'll take it out on Bruto, the first guard said. Nobody's ever survived a gut shot from Bruto before. We should take him to the shipping office and ship him to Narsis. Let him get killed by the real champions if he survives. He'll probably die on the ship anyway. Look at the condition he's in. Jonathan labored to breathe without feeling excruciating agony. He was still losing a little blood, but the wound had clotted somehow. A brick of dark congealed blood and tissue filled the place where Bruto's spear had gutted him earlier. He was conscious, but only barely. He felt so much pain he was delirious. Let's take him to the kitchen. The shipping office is just across the hall next to the stables. The two guards carried Jonathan up the ramp to the platform where he had tried to escape earlier. He saw the passing corridors in a daze of pain and adrenaline-induced endorphins. After what felt like hours of delusional dreams mixed with reality, he woke up in a carriage with a chain around his wrist and a block of bread lying next to him. He could hear the clip-clop of hooves nearby. Light was beginning to breach the eastern horizon through the barred window over his head. He clasped his hands over his front to find that his wound had stopped bleeding. The carriage came to a halt. Jonathan took in the unmistakable aroma of salt and humidity. He was by the sea. 4. When they unloaded Jonathan from the carriage, the light from the sky was too bright for him to see. He wasn't out in the open for long. They put chains on his wrists and hauled him up the ramp onto the boat. A low roar emanated from the lower deck. The guards pushed him through the threshold into the ship's interior. He was able to see in the dimness and saw a huge cage with at least a hundred men pressed against its bars from the inside. There didn't appear to be room left, but he was forced in regardless. Grabbing hands and poking feet shoved him from all directions as the crowd weighed on him. 
Everything smelled of bodies and the potent mixture of sweat and skin. Jonathan couldn't imagine what it was like for the poor souls trapped in the middle. The guards closed the door on them, and Jonathan was brutishly worked into the grating of the bars. There was more moaning and shouting of rage and frustration than anything else. As this went on, Jonathan did not believe his life could get any worse. The death of which he'd been deprived would have provided the only conceivable relief from this horrible nightmare. It did not end. This unbearable existence that reminded him of being caged poultry on earth continued his suffering like the flickering wick of a candle. He had no idea how long he watched the passing of sailors as feet and bodies pushed and punched him in the back. Finally, the claustrophobia set in. Panic gripped him. Jonathan clutched the iron bars and shook himself against them. He began to scream and roar as the chronic disease of group terror infected him like it had the others. There was no sanity to be found, no relief or break. It was pure hell. The rage curled its fingers into his spirit. He could not stand this any longer. He was getting out of this cage if it ripped him apart to do so. Grabbing the bars, Jonathan Tabith elbowed faces and legs as he wrenched and pulled. The gratifying screech of metal filled the hall as the bars bent against their natural shape. Muscles pumped in his arms. With a mighty heave, Jonathan broke the crossbar, unzipping the metal cage that had been constructed to inhumanely contain large groups of prisoners. He and dozens of others were birthed from the cage. Jonathan went tumbling across the wooden deck. A group of sailors and guards came running into the interior room, shouting. Jonathan rose. A guard immediately punched him in the face, sending him back to the floor. Prisoners began trampling him, bringing their weight on the bones of his back. Jonathan got to his feet and felt the cool of blood running down his face. Someone pushed a guard into Jonathan as the boat rocked to the side. The men and inmates tumbled to the far wall. Jonathan felt his anger take over. His hate for this world finally manifested itself in a physical form. His fist connected with a guard's chest. A grimace filled the man's face before he flew off his feet and into the far wall as the ship made another nauseating curve. A boom of thunder cut through the ambiance outside. Inside, a riot had begun. Guards had drawn steel. The escaping prisoners took the blades from the sailors and guards and began brutally ripping their captors apart. A lake of blood ran back and forth across the floor with the ship's motion. The sailors shut and latched the doors leading to the upper deck. The prisoners formed a crowd at the wooden steps and pounded on the doors. Jonathan spit a hawk of blood from his mouth before he and dozens of others flew to the back of the hold as the ship's forward bow went almost straight up. Boxes and prisoners rained down on him. Jonathan could hear the rage of the storm beyond the wooden walls. The stern creaked as the ship steadied. Everyone collapsed on the floor. Predibula! someone called. Beulah! the prisoners began shouting disharmoniously. The clash of waves and wind against the side of the ship rocked them to the port bow. The thundering bass of some otherworldly creature sent shivers down Jonathan's back. As he lay against the wall with a dozen other people on top of him, he felt it. It connected to him, heard him, felt him. It was him that it was after. Glowing blue reptilian eyes swam before his vision. He realized that he was screaming and flailing, knocking people away from him, but he couldn't take his sight from the turquoise globes surrounding the slits of its gaze. A silence sliced through the ambiance. It was his last moment. He'd had so many. The terror gripped him in its icy embrace. A huge tentacle burst through the opposite wall, ushering in the sea. More tentacles ripped through the other walls. Water filled Jonathan's face as he fought to pull in air. People were all over him, burying and weighing on him. Then he felt the monstrous thing curl about his waist and tear him from the mound of bodies that nearly became his tomb. He slid over the floor and caught the bars of the cage. The tentacle slipped off him. A moment later, the back end of the ship was torn away to the flickering storm clouds above the churning ocean. Jonathan's heart seized as the hull began to sink and gravity pulled at him. Everything else fell toward the sea below. 
A turquoise reptilian eye appeared at one of the holes the monster had made earlier. The base of its call rattled the bones in Jonathan's body. His fingers slipped from the bar and he fell toward the mess of boxes and bodies. Some of the prisoners were still writhing around in horror. Another tentacle exploded through the wall and snatched him around the middle. Jonathan tried to escape, but it was hopeless. The thing squeezed him so that everything beneath his pelvis went numb. It carried him out of the ship and there it was, the largest squid Jonathan had ever seen in his life. It didn't seem interested in anything else but him. He watched the boat sink. Some of the prisoners began to swim, but the waves swallowed them up in seconds. Rain and seawater pelted him from all directions as the creature brought Jonathan down to its eyes. He could see its reptilian gaze enter him as its mottled gray form surfaced at the top of the massive sea. Within it, Jonathan could feel everything as if they were one. All of its experiences and emotions transferred to Jonathan and he was able to see, perhaps not understand, the wealth of knowledge that existed in this ancient being. It was a connection so foreign to him and yet such an existential part of organic life. He had tapped into a new sensory receptor, a part of his brain that had been silent throughout his entire life until now. The giant squid released the base call. At this proximity, Jonathan's body went lax. He was immobilized, like a doll within a child's grasp. The squid flared its tentacles before firing under the sea at such a high velocity Jonathan lost consciousness. 5. Jonathan woke to an overcast sky without remembering anything that had happened before his consciousness left him. He felt disoriented, drunk without knowing how he got wherever he was. He sat up and saw the sea rolling up and down the beach. Evergreen pines lined the grassy bank nearby. His breath plumed from his lips as he massaged his forehead. He was freezing in his boxer shorts, the only reminder to him that he came from a world that had been tamed. He ran a hand over his stomach and felt the place where he'd been stabbed. It had healed. Jonathan stared down at the crater-shaped scar that had been caused by a two-inch diameter spearhead, completely healed over. No blood, no scab, no infection. No human being's body could reconstruct skin tissue that quickly. Granted, the spear hadn't encountered any vital organs, but a full recovery overnight was impossible. He recalled being on the boat and then remembered the squid. He surveyed the sea, wondering if it was still out there somewhere, or if it was some vivid hallucination he had imagined in the wake of the physical illness he had been experiencing. Perhaps the boat simply crashed against some rocks and sank. No giant squid, no profound enlightening experience. Jonathan didn't know why, but he felt fine now. Better than fine. Standing up, Jonathan realized that in spite of being very cold, he hadn't felt so good in 25 years. It was like being 21 again. He remembered the decline, where waking up early and working hard started getting difficult. It had happened at around age 35. This was something else, though. His mind was clear. He felt healthy and physically fit. A little hungry, but good to go. He sat on a beach watching the endless cloud cover drift across the sky. He remembered the enigma and all the people aboard that he had let down. The horror of the black hole struck him once more. He thought of Rowie and Lang and put a hand to his mouth, remembering what these people were capable of. Jonathan remembered Elizabeth and dropped his head into his hands. So many people had died because of his endeavors to enter into a new frontier. A thought came back to him like the sun breaking through the clouds after a day of storms. What would happen if he went back through the hole? If he could power the Enigma again and find out what vector of space they entered from, he might be able to return to the previous vector. It was worth a shot, even if he died trying. A twig snapped behind him. You there, a woman's voice met his ears. Are you the one who's been stealing the plants from my garden? Jonathan took a moment to consider her words. He turned his head slowly to look at her. She was young, maybe in her early twenties by Earthen standards. 
Her hair was long and chocolate brown. Her eyes were a sincere mix of blue and green behind a misty fox-like complexion. She wore a pair of pants that were rolled up to the knee above pale legs splattered with mud. Her white blouse was stained with mucky fingerprints. In her left hand, she clutched a tin can, and in her right, she brandished a long silver sword. Jonathan climbed to his feet. My name is Jonathan, he said in his most convincing Alondron accent. I'm a vagrant and I'm at your mercy. I'll do whatever you ask if you'll spare me only a bit of food and water. I'll be on my way as soon as you've had enough of me. All right, I'll call your bluff. Let's put you to work. My name is Aya. She smirked at him, holding his gaze for a few seconds before she turned to the path leading up and between the cliffs to the grassy mainland. Jonathan had hoped there would be food before work. He was exhausted, hungry, and running on the body fat he still had left, most of which had been depleted, but he had committed to the chores, so he followed the girl to the brush line leading all the way down to the cliffside. The two paused beside a blunt axe lying in the grass. Just clear the stuff back to those posts over there. She pointed at two pillars sticking out of the overgrown wall of saplings and small trees. I've been tied up in Shirasa, so my garden has been suffering. Do that, and in a few myrtas, I'll have some food and water for you. But if I catch you stealing any of my crops... She nodded to a line of vegetables in various stages of growth, some bearing fruit that needed harvesting. I'll beat the sputo out of you and have you shackled in Shirasa. Jonathan bowed and picked up the axe. It felt lighter than any axe he had carried previously. Oh, and before you get started, you might find some pants. Snakes like to hide in the tall grass. They'll come out after the sun has warmed the land later, Aya said, eyeing his space boxers that had turned dark black from sweat, blood, and grime. She smirked, meeting his eyes. I'll be fine. He smiled and began hacking at the nearest sapling. It split after three strikes. He chopped through the bigger roots and grabbed hold of the moist, gnarled root system, ripping out the sapling's base with ease. His father used to have him do these sorts of chores on the farm all the time. Throughout grade school, he'd been forced to do farm work while his peers had a daily exposure to modern technology. Jonathan had jumped at the opportunity to leave the early 20th century lifestyle behind once he reached college age. Being smart with his hands also meant that technology unfolded itself to him like a familiar friend. It didn't take long to make a path to the far right pillar. He cleared the area to the other pillar and started working his way inward until all that was left was the ankle-high grass between the places where Jonathan had ripped up most of the roots. The weirdest part about it all was how simple it was. He had helped shape the height of human technology, and now was asked to perform the basic task of clearing weeds from a garden. Even still, he had barely broken a sweat to do what on earth would have taken all afternoon. It was impossibly easy. Wow, Aya said, looking at the cleared garden. That was hardly a myrta. You're useful, and I could use a good garden hand if you're interested. I doubt I'll be able to stay longer than a few days, but I'd be happy to earn my keep. Maybe work for some decent clothes, Jonathan said, noting the itchy welts that were beginning to spring up where the brush bugs had gotten him. Autumn will reach its conclusion soon, so if you plan to travel, then you'll have a pit before the winter sets in. Come on, let's go get some food. Jonathan followed Aya up the hill. He didn't even see the house until they reached the top. It was a one-story house that looked remarkably similar to that of a medieval earthen structure. Its roof was made of straw and the walls of stone. While her garden looked fairly well-kempt, the grass around the house was knee-high and full of rodents and giant yellow and black spiders. Aya moved in front of Jonathan as they traveled down a cobblestone avenue leading to her front door. His eyes fell to the sword in its sheath hanging from her waist. He could get it and gain the advantage of choice. He could take all the supplies and food in her home and escape. Having witnessed indescribable horrors over the last few days, basic social situations such as these felt tedious and slow. He needed to get off the ground and back into the sky. Aya opened the door to her home and pushed out the shutters at the window to allow light to enter the living room. Two chairs upholstered with wolfskin sat before the ashy fireplace. 
She hurried to the stone kitchen. I boiled some water this morning, so this should still be good. She poured the water from the pitcher into a wooden mug and gave it to Jonathan. He took it and drank it down in three gulps. The cool liquid flooded his insides. You were thirsty, she laughed. I'll get you some more from the well. Here, eat something. Aya tossed Jonathan a bread roll and left through another door at the back of the kitchen. Jonathan paced the room, feeling chilly in only his boxers. He took a bite of the bread roll and stared at a painting on the wall. It was the view from a hillside overlooking a huge valley of pine trees. The sun descended on the left side of the picture. Its reflection shimmered like fire on the lake water. There were other pictures, some of trees, others of crudely drawn people. Jonathan looked at an image of an old man with hunched-over shoulders and a scowling face. He heard the creak of the wooden floor from the hall nearby. Aya! A man stumbled from the darkness. He smelled of garlic and tobacco. Jonathan took a step back. The man's eyes glittered red from the shadows. His hair was long and his face was unshaven from what Jonathan could see. He moved around in the corridor but refused to enter the light of the room. Where's Aya? He growled. Outside, Jonathan said. Who are you and why are you here? He yelled. Jonathan moved back farther. I was just going. Jonathan said, moving for the door. Where are you going? Aya asked from the doorway in the kitchen. She held a full bucket of water. I didn't mean to intrude. Jonathan bowed toward the man in the doorway. Balor? She sighed and placed the water on the countertop in the kitchen. Why are you awake, Balor? It's morning. You know you're not supposed to be up during the day. I smelled something strange. Jonathan couldn't see in the dimness, but he was sure Balor was glaring at him. Is he... Suko? Jonathan asked, recalling his Latin roots. Something told him his word for vampire wouldn't match theirs. Sukomia, said Aya. It's an illness caused by someone else who's been infected. My brother used to be part of the King's Guard. They were asked to eliminate a village of infected people, murder blindly even though I've seen a full recovery before. They weren't supposed to hesitate. They were supposed to kill everyone and return within the afternoon. Balor hesitated. He couldn't bring himself to murder the five-year-old boy that looked like his son. The boy, however, was feral. The first stage of Sukomia after the infection is spread. He managed to get his finger through the break in Balor's armor and scratched his neck. That's all it takes. Balor escaped the throng of soldiers, hid for a few days, and came back home in Shirasa. This was our home when we were kids before the thieves began to plague the wilderness, so we fled here. I trapped Balor in the basement during his feral stage. Once it wore off, he was able to feed on the rats in the cellar. I thought he was dead. It took a whole pit for me to go back down there. Since you'll be staying, you should get to know Balor. Errand boy, Balor stated gruffly. He turned his back and blended with the shadows. Aya smiled at Jonathan as Balor returned to his room. Let's get you into some fresh clothes. That'd be wonderful, Jonathan said. Aya made her way to a wardrobe adjacent to the fireplace. She drew back each door to reveal dozens of coats hung above a chest of drawers. Sliding open one of the drawers, Aya withdrew a pair of pants and handed them to Jonathan. She rummaged in another drawer and found a pair of socks and a faded white undershirt. She took a brown, hard leather jacket from the hanger and placed it on the other clothes in his arms. He dressed in the garb of this foreign place, and realized as he looked at a small square mirror on the wall that he looked like a peasant farmer from the medieval ages. We can get more clothes when I go to Shirasa over the next few masses. This is all I can spare, so don't disappear in the night, Aya said. You don't have to worry about that, Aya, Jonathan assured her. I won't worry about it if you can find my last assistant and bring him to Balor, Aya said in a tone that suggested she wasn't serious. If it was only me, I'd be happy with the man's head, but Balor wants to take Lanny Redbetter apart piece by piece for taking all our expensive possessions during the day when there wasn't anything he could do about it, except watch. He also, also forced himself on me. 
Aya stared at the floor, the inner corners of her eyebrows narrowing in frustration. I'll find him, Jonathan said. Aya fired a cynical look at him. That's unlikely. Lanny's probably on another continent by now. Besides, it wasn't the first time something like that has happened to me. Just because an atrocity has happened before doesn't make another atrocity less horrible. Where I come from, rape has been so far removed from acceptable behavior that we send rapists to asteroids to mine for minerals. She stared at him as though he had come from another world. Jonathan figured she might not have understood everything he said either. I have never met a man who did not take what he wanted, not in my 26 hyenas of being alive. That there is a place where that doesn't happen sounds like a fantasy realm. Maybe I'll take you there someday, Jonathan said. It's Miranda Hora, and I'm starving, Aya said and went into the kitchen. Jonathan watched her take some peeled carrots and potatoes, tomatoes, okra, and celery and throw them into a large, three-legged bronze pot atop a crudely made wood stove. Striking a fire within the stove, she set the soup to boil. Where did you come from? she asked, using a wooden ladle to stir the vegetables in the pot. Chrysias, Jonathan said. He didn't know anything else about the place other than that it was terrible. Really? That's all the way in Pafane, across the ocean. We get shipments from them in Chirasa. It takes a few days because the only port city in Pafane is to the south, Dartus. I want to move to Cathara someday, I sighed. Jonathan sat at the table and stared at its smooth top. I should be dead. If I was home, I'd have been dead days ago. I don't actually know how long I've been here. What do you mean when you say here? She glanced over at him. This world, Alondronon. Where were you before? She asked. A world called Earth. Well, it had been a long time since I was actually on my world. I arrived here by spacecraft. Earth? Like, a prison? Aya stared at him, genuine wonder in her eyes. What makes you think that? He asked. Earth, she emphasized the word, is an old term for an isolation cell, a place removed from the rest of society. It's in the old texts in Shirasa, read from the Nishiridon. I've seen them and heard a reading. It's from the ancient Trelar mythology. The god Tyros was able to recognize himself, and so he and his people became so powerful that they could no longer die. They were so strong that they were able to create planets with a mere thought. The kings of Alondronon at that Aetis condemned their capabilities, regarding them as disruptive to the order of nature, and threatened to murder Tyros's wife from his past if he didn't create a place for he and his brethren, a place that made them weak and kept them from being able to interfere with the great Omne. Tyros accepted their proposal so long as his wife was allowed to go with him. So Tyros created Earth, a place far removed from Alondronon. Of course, the moment he and his wife set foot upon Earth, his wife, a princess of one of the Alondronon kings that had condemned Tyros to Earth, turned to dust. Tyros was left alone on Earth, immortal and without the only person who had ever loved him. He had left her in the beginning so that he could discover himself. It's a nice story, and I recommend attending a reading of the Nishiridon if you can convince the followers of Omne to let you in on a reading. Jonathan's eyes were narrowed in thought. He looked at her as she stirred the soup. Is it difficult to set up a reading? Only certain groups of people are allowed to hear it, I said. How did you hear it? We took a trip to Shirasa when I was in school. They always let the children in for a hearing. Jebhar has done the reading for the last 32 years. If you're in the Guild of Scholars in Narsus, you can see the text whenever you need. Some of the high-praised gladiators who are Ammonites are privileged to hearing before they enter into a tough upcoming battle. There are a lot of allowances for religious leaders, assuming their religion is respected well enough. Readers of Am are always welcome. I'm assuming Amine is a god? Aya shook her head. Just god. There are no gods if you're an Ammonite. Are you an Ammonite? Used to be, she said. I just don't know. An all-encompassing force that sees and hears everything, guiding men to slay one another in his name? Sounds familiar, Jonathan cocked his brow. 
It's not that I do or don't believe in it. I just don't know, Aya said. Don't fret about it. You're fine. Will I be sleeping outside tonight? Jonathan asked, finding the prospect intriguing. Of course not. We have a guest room. And try not to worry about Balor. He's just sick. Sick and angry. I'm not worried about Balor, Jonathan said. He lurks the countryside in the night. There's a lock on the guest bedroom door, but I can't guarantee that we'll keep him out. The soup will probably take a bit longer if you need a rest. There's more yard work to do this afternoon. Which way to the guest room? Jonathan pointed toward a hall that led to a crossway between Aya's Balor's and the guest bedrooms. On the right, Aya said. Jonathan entered a simple room that would have been the size of a small earthen bedroom. Other than the neatly made bed pushed into the corner beneath the open window, he saw nothing else. He had to crane his neck as he made his way alongside the bed to the window where he could see out to the green pine trees everywhere. It's a little cramped, I know, but it's better than nothing, Aya said from behind him. Jonathan took a moment to remember the last place he slept, the stone slab of the underground prison while the prisoners ripped his clothes off because he was too sick to fight back. It's perfect. Aya returned to the kitchen while Jonathan sat on the edge of the bed. He took a deep breath, feeling relaxed for the first time in a long while. Considering what had happened on the Enigma, he couldn't have imagined that he'd be in a place like this. There was pain here, though. Jonathan could feel it stained upon the walls, coating the floors and ingrained in Aya's face. But she was strong. She could never have survived with her brother out here for this long otherwise. 6. Laying down, Jonathan closed his eyes. He breathed in through his nose for a few minutes, feeling calm sink into his bones until he began to drift. It wasn't very long before he felt it homing in on him. Jonathan's eyes opened, feeling the panic, feeling the terror, feeling everything he had felt aboard the Enigma moments before the fall. His fingers clenched the sheets beneath him and his teeth locked as the ship began to crash. A huge thrum shook the earth, quaking the whole house. Aya screamed, dropping to the floor in the other room. Jonathan jumped to his feet and had just entered the hall corridor when Balor, like a demon out of hell, plowed right into his side, knocking him to the floor. The two skidded down the hall into the living room, Balor on top. The western sun sizzled upon his skin through the open window. Balor didn't care. He raised his fist, meaning to bring it down on Jonathan's face. Jonathan heaved him back as hard as he could, sending Balor into one of Aya's paintings on the wall. Aya screamed again as Balor struggled to get to his feet. Jonathan rushed out through the front door and ran toward the ship. He couldn't see it, but there was a plume of smoke rising over the tree line behind the house. The shockwave demolished several of the oak trees near the back fence. Jonathan went around the fence and through the gate where a cart path led toward the open mouth of the forest nearby. Poking a left, he saw the crashed hawk nosed into the ground ahead. A man wearing the comfortingly familiar uniform of the Enigma fell from the open cockpit to the ground. Jonathan jogged to his side. He didn't recognize the man, but his flesh was pale and his eyes were bloodshot. Helping him to his feet, Jonathan saw Aya hurry from around the path. Jonathan! Jonathan Tabith! You're from my world! Their eyes met. Something didn't feel right in those light blue pupils. He'd seen something horrible. What's your name? Jonathan asked in English. Joel. Joel Wakefield, he answered and saw Aya approaching. Joel slid away from Jonathan and dropped to his knees, withdrawing the pistol from the holster at his left hip. He pointed it at the woman. The sky was an ungodly blue against the quavering green grass of the seaside meadow. No, Jonathan yelled. Aya stopped. Joel clicked the safety off. I don't know her, Jonathan, he yelled. If she's not with us, she's with them. What are you talking about, Joel? Jonathan said, but he wasn't getting through. Joel wasn't convinced. Put your weapon down or I'll be forced to report this event to your commanding officer. Joel dropped the butt of his gun to his knee, frustrated and confused. Give me the gun, Joel, Jonathan ordered. 
Joel hesitated. I said, give me the gun. Jonathan said in a tone that was so quiet it was almost a whisper. Joel dropped the clip and gave Jonathan the gun. He glanced at Aya. She looked to Jonathan, who was breaking down the weapon into pieces. Quieres a stud? Aya asked, wondering about the weapon. Usitibi maxime periclosis, Jonathan answered. Aya looked a mixture of confused and worried at this. He had told her that the item in his hand was the most dangerous thing she had ever seen. Are you speaking Latin? Joel asked Jonathan. Jonathan nodded. Many of their words are similar or the same. I don't think she understands everything I'm saying, but I've been incorporating everything she says to my own vocabulary. How is that possible? I have a hypothesis. Have you noticed anything about yourself since the fall? Deeper thought, an overhaul in physical endurance, better sight and sense of hearing and smell. Not noticeably. Of course, I've been up in the air for the last few days. Joel suddenly looked ill. I think I need to lie down. Jonathan looked to Aya. He needs to use the guest room. He shook his head. Hospitium uti oporte, he said to Aya. Aya nodded and started back for the house. Jonathan put his arm around Joel's back to help him along. As they stepped onto the path and made for the house, Jonathan could see Balor's hunched-over figure standing in the doorway just out of the sunlight. As they approached, Balor slowly lurked out of view. The two brought Joel into the house and helped him onto the bed in the guest bedroom. Thank you, Joel sighed and wrinkled his brow with nausea. I don't know what came over me. It's the atmosphere. You need to rest. You'll feel better after you wake up, Jonathan said. How do you know? Joel asked, his teeth beginning to chatter. Jonathan helped him under the wool bed cover. Because I went through the same thing. It's a temporary rejection of whatever's in the atmosphere of this planet. I don't know exactly, but once your body accepts it, everything gets easier. Jonathan took a deep breath and crossed his arms over his chest. Listen, Joel, I'm going to have to leave you in this room. I suggest that you don't leave without me. I'll make sure you're not disturbed. Thank you, Jonathan, Joel said to him from his position on the bed. The last of the color in his face drained and he hurled over the edge of the bedside. Jonathan left the room and closed the door behind him. Aya was glaring at him with her fists on her hips. She was upset. I'll clean up the mess, I promise. He can stay so long as you take care of him, she said. I'll take care of everything, but for now I have to go search his ship, Jonathan said and made for the door. You might need a weapon if you're going back out there, Jonathan. It'll be dark soon, Aya said. Jonathan paused next to her, considering the gun. He had limited ammunition, so he needed to keep it hidden in case of a serious emergency. Do you have a weapon I can borrow? Anything better than a shovel? You can use the Bruta, Aya said and went into the living room. Jonathan followed. She pulled back the chair in the corner to reveal a mace over half Jonathan's size. It looked like it weighed a ton. A Bruta, like a giant mace, Jonathan said. Aya pulled it over to him and dropped the handle in his hand. Jonathan felt his muscles flex as he lifted the thing upright. In spite of how capable he felt, it was more like a burden than a weapon. This probably won't work. I'll go get Balor's sword. She disappeared into the depths of the house. There was a brief argument between Aya and Balor, muffled speech of protest from her brother. A moment later, she returned, carrying a longsword with a red tassel wrapped around the base of the hilt. We'll need to sharpen it soon, but it should be good for now. Jonathan took the blade and held it up. It was heavy for him, but only because he came from a society that wasn't trained with such weaponry. A man of his career didn't generally practice wielding swords. Thank you. I'll be back shortly. Aya nodded and Jonathan hurried out the door. Twilight fell over the forest. Jonathan followed the path through the gate and approached the fallen hawk spacecraft. It didn't look salvageable. He climbed inside and assessed the damage. All the systems were so badly damaged that the ship wouldn't even come on. That meant that the power wasn't flowing from the inner core to the rest of the vessel. It was simple by comparison to his previous project. 
The familiarity of Erlen technology welcomed him in a way that he didn't think he'd ever experience again. Checking under the seat for the repair kit that had been installed on every hawk, Jonathan felt around the vacant clip mechanism. It had been taken. Frustration filled him. Why would Joel have needed it? A flight junkie had no authority to even pop the hood on one of these things, much less make any attempt to fix it. He must have landed earlier, Jonathan said. Flying the ship wasn't necessary, even though it would simplify things significantly. Getting it to turn on was priority now, because if he could do that, he might be able to access the Enigma's communication mainframe and find out where the other survivors were. After shoving the tail end of the hawk down so the nose propped upright, Jonathan used the end of Balor's blade to pry open the hood. Everything inside looked like a mess, even more a mess than usual. It wasn't easy getting one of these things airworthy, much less spaceworthy. He unhooked the distributor and slipped it through the fat hyperdrive to Universal Governor modulator cables. Beneath that was the central power nexus, which was torqued in a way that wouldn't allow it to function. Jonathan pushed it back into its receiver. The nexus lit up with the familiar blue light that thousands, if not tens of thousands, of technological advances throughout human history had created. Condensed energy, the will that distinguished mankind as more than just a biological organism that is a byproduct of the conditions of a certain type of habitat. That didn't make mankind stronger than nature, but certainly different. He returned the distributor to its cable and locked it in place. It lit up bright blue, flickering occasionally. Jonathan didn't like that because it meant that something had been shorted. He closed the hood and got back into the pilot's seat. The dashboard turned on, activated by his weight. The hollow screen before him illuminated. He waited for the Enigma's communications network to connect. The network, powered directly from the core, was designed to transmit throughout the whole of Earth's solar system. Regardless of how large Alondronon was, so long as the core of the Enigma remained functional, the network should continue to exist. Jonathan attempted to connect with the Enigma. It took about two minutes, but he was able to locate the network's signal. There were hundreds of new topics on the shipwide message board. The survivors were staying in contact. Regions all over the globe were calling for attention. Some of the subjects were startling. Recounts of hostile encounters with the natives of the planet. The word Alondronon was everywhere. The natives were considered Alondrons, among the many survivors that had come into contact with them. Jonathan scanned the threads at a speed in which he had never possessed before. He could break down complete blocks of text within microseconds. There were messages for him as well. Stephen Adams, the now self-assumed captain of the Fallen Enigma, was trying to coordinate a meeting with him and many of the other officials on a small island in the northern hemisphere of the planet. They wanted to install trackers on everyone so they could find each other through the network. He had missed three of the meetings so far, but so did almost everyone else. Those who had been in constant contact with the network were trying to gather in newly formed communes. The biggest and most talked about was Meacham. It had become a huge refugee post for survivors. The second largest town had been formed in the same deserted civilization where Jonathan had been captured and nearly eaten by the devils known to the Alondrons as Faranites. It was called Enigma Station. Several of the threads tied to Enigma Station tried to delegitimize Meacham, saying that the hamlet could promise nothing in the way of survival while the residents of Enigma Station had full access to the equipment and supplies left on the Enigma. Posts argued against the concept of clinging to earthen technology, declaring that they needed to assimilate the ways of the natives and leave earth thinking behind. One of the biggest instigators of this was Chance Trelion, one of his top engineers on the Enigma. Jonathan read one of his posts several times while considering its content. First Lieutenant C. Trelion, Naivete. To those who believe that the Alondrons have an interest in welcoming us with open arms, to those who believe that we can count ourselves as a plausible race alongside these natives, to those who believe that we have a right to fight for our lives, and to those who still believe we have a chance in the future, it doesn't matter what you believe. 
It's been decided within every Londron city I've encountered that the outsiders, the invaders from the moons, as they call us, are not welcome here. I've watched men I went to the academy with get captured and executed. I've seen Alondron officials execute several people, natives of their own race, for the mere suspicion that they might be of otherworldly origin. They will never welcome us. Our presence here is becoming widely known as a stay that has been overextended. To return to the Enigma and gather limited weaponry is to delay the inevitable. Their goal is to wipe us out so they can get back to wiping each other out. The only way for us to survive is to look, act, and talk like them. As far as I've seen, it's the clothes we wear and the words that come out of our mouths that scare these people. No human city will stand so long as the Alondrons hold a majority on this planet. Jonathan read a few other stories and was surprised to see a recent post involving Stephanie Rowie, which meant that she had escaped. First Environmental Officer S. Rowie, Alondron Hatred. Hello everyone, Stephanie here on the continent that the Alondrons call Shartan. It's difficult to express how upset I am through text, but I have never been more terrified than I am now. A constant patrol of Alondron guards keeps me here. My grum bar and canned food supply is dwindling, but I dare not leave my safety. I will starve to death in this freighter before I leave. After the things I've seen, what's going to happen to us? Why did we have to land somewhere like this, where the people can be so monstrous? They look like us. I've never been so humiliated and injured in the way I was during my time with the Alondrons. That I was able to escape and return to you is a miracle. There is no one left of the group of women I was with. When the men of the city of Christus removed my shackles, I managed to incapacitate my captor and stole a horse. If my tale can serve as a purpose, my experience with those horrible people help guide us to a collective decision as to how to move forward on this planet, then I will put it to text. After we entered the flight dock, there was chaos. The whole ship looked damaged beyond recognition on the scans. We had to shut off the warning system since there was so much to warn us about. We were essentially coming to pieces, a fly without wings rocketing toward the planet below. A hole formed in the flight deck while we were trying to board the ships. A group of at least 40 people were sucked out the instant it developed before debris and bodies stopped the hole long enough for us to get through. It was difficult for those of us who lived to get to the ships with all the oxygen escaping into the vacuum of space. People started to panic. Our freighter was backing out of the dock doors when a falcon hit our starboard side, blowing off our right thruster. The other falcon blew up, sending the bodies of a family of five spiraling into space. The sound of it was so loud that everyone aboard the freighter thought that the Enigma had exploded. We managed to fly on, setting a course for the planet. As soon as we landed, we evacuated the ship, thinking that it was about to explode because it wouldn't stop smoking. It was actually burning grass and earth beneath our ship. We had just passed through the Londrinon's atmosphere. After doing a quick inventory and body count, we dispersed the weaponry accordingly. The Enigma mission wasn't meant to put us into a hostile conflict, so we weren't given the proper equipment on Pluto Station. We had about 490 people on the transport freighter. We were half and half in ratio of men to women. When the Alondrons surrounded us, there were a lot more of them. They spoke in a language that none of us understood at first. After about five minutes of struggling, the Alondrons got fed up and started rounding us up to take us back to their city. I had started to understand what they were saying when they began to split up the men from the women. This is when the fighting started. The Alondrons stabbed those who resist first. They carried swords and wore chain mail. Our people with guns started firing. If it were Earth, everyone would have stopped when the shooting began, good guys and bad guys. But the Alondrons hadn't been conditioned to fear the sound of gunfire the way we had been over the last thousand years. Rather than stopping, their efforts intensified. They overran the people with guns after their ammunition ran out. 
If we'd had any idea of what we were doing or what would become of us, we would have used legitimate tactics. We were completely flat-footed and had no communication between ourselves whatsoever. After the gunfire ceased and men of our group began to grow sparse, we stopped fighting and let them take us. We should have died fighting. That would have been far superior to the alternative. We were led across the country until we camped for the evening. That night they started killing the men one after another. Officers started grabbing the women and taking them into their camps. After being processed and stripped in Chryseus, the king and his son paraded me and Lang Thompson before a crowd of jeering prisoners and prison guards. They were trying to get Jonathan Tabith to fight a man three times his size before they murdered him in cold blood. After that, Lang and I were separated. Lang was sent with the king's son and I was sent to the stables to join a group of other women that were being shipped to a city called Dartis to the south. It's here that I was able to steal a horse and flee with Patrick Spaulding's daughter, Elda Spaulding. We ran the horse until it fell over from exhaustion, retracing the path that the army had taken. We hid in a cave until the Alondrons found us. At least, they found Elda. We met each other's eyes for the last time, and I listened to them take her from the shadows of the cave. They did a poor job of searching through the cave the next morning and didn't find me. After a day of waiting, I found my way back to the freighter with a group of Alondron guards standing around the ship. I was able to get inside and lock the doors before they could catch me. Now I'm trapped, and they're not going to leave before I run out of food and die. If anyone is reading this, please just be aware of my story. I'm not asking for help. I'm asking you to never trust these people who look like us. Kill them if you can, but don't trust them. Good luck. Stay alive. Unfortunately, Jonathan realized Chance Trelion was right. The only options were to blend in, leave, or die. They were what they had always been, even on Earth, invaders and destroyers of another society. This time, the other society wasn't going to roll over and allow them to dominate. They were going to fight tooth and nail for what they believed was theirs, so similar to humans. It was hard to believe they were different at all. The idea reminded Jonathan of his hypothesis, something that a few others from the forums had noticed as well. Changes, transformations, abilities. Some were small, some were large, some weren't gains at all but horrible life-ending curses. More than one person recounted stories of spontaneously bursting into flames. Several people claimed to have telekinetic abilities. One man claimed to be able to drastically change his body temperature at will. Several people, mostly women, purported to have sustained serious injuries and recovered fully within hours. Many of these responses called these changes a delusional psychosis created in the brain after a traumatic event in order to cope with the complex or difficult situation. It was this ignorant statement that inspired Jonathan to start his own thread. Enigma Oversight Officer J. Tabith The Prodigy Effect I want to make it very clear that while I was stabbed in Stephanie Rowie's company, I wasn't killed. I am still very much alive and well for a very good reason that I'd like to share with everyone. Perhaps you've noticed it. Perhaps you've felt it inside you. It's a growing physical change that each of us are undergoing. I have personally noticed hundreds of changes within myself and my own frame of mind. This is not something natural. This is not a coping mechanism. If you've ever owned a goldfish, you know that you aren't supposed to throw the goldfish in a bowl of tap water as soon as you get it home. It has to be slowly introduced to its new environment, and the environment has to be introduced to the fish. What's happening with us is similar. Our environment was somehow limiting us in core physical and mental ways. Now that we've been introduced to an environment that is altogether different, we're beginning to transform in ways that no one can predict or understand. It's a variable about our bodies and our connection to our habitat that we have not yet mapped. Until we have a better understanding of what precisely is happening to each of us, we must be watchful and patient as we experience these transformations. You are not alone. We are all together in this. Jonathan felt relieved. His hunger to connect with the collective of his own kind had been sated. 
He wished that he could communicate more, but night had fallen. He needed to get back to Aya's house. In the morning, he would come back, spend a few minutes on the network, and then take apart the console so he could put it together somewhere else. He shut off the hollow screen and console and opened the hatch. His eyes hadn't adjusted since he'd been staring at the bright hollow screen for so long. A hand emerged from the darkness and closed a fist around his shirt front. He was hoisted from the ship and thrown onto the ground. The intensity of the violent mind connected to Jonathan's as the assailant pinned him down, impressing him with the anger and hatred of someone who has nothing to lose. The knife came down in a slashing arc, meeting Jonathan's chest, plucking a string of blood as the trained attacker wrenched the blade from between Jonathan's ribcage and plunged it back in repeatedly. All the strength left him. No amount of bodily transformation can physically negate major bodily trauma. Jonathan tried to punch the person, but he was too weak. The attacker planted the blade a final time and left it there, disappearing from Jonathan's sight as quickly as he had entered. He shivered as the coal of his sweat mixed with the coal of the night. Nice job, Quilter. There's hope for you yet, another voice said from the darkness that felt like it was closing in on Jonathan. He recalled how content he had been, how satisfied he felt just a minute earlier, how easily the world can change, how easily and quickly it can all end. The sound of dozens of feet filled the clearing where the ship had landed. What is it? A gruff voice asked. It doesn't look like anything I've seen before. Doesn't matter, spoke a high, nasally tone. Get the harness around it and let's haul it back to the camp so Redbetter can see. He'll know what to do. What should we do with this one? Do you think he knows how to use it? There were so many voices he couldn't keep track of them all and his consciousness was fading. Look at the way he's dressed. He's not one of them. The farmhand got inside, couldn't figure it out, and then nature takes his course. Did you hear that? Someone might come. Get the horse ready. The clip-clop of hooves entered the clearing. All right, we'll push and you haul. The sound of people exerting effort dissolved around Jonathan. The grunts and calls mixed into a blur as his consciousness left him. This concludes episode 11 of the podcast. The longer I write and the more stories I create, the more I see that they are all connected. Jonathan Tabbitt's journey is one of the many foundations that are integral in a much larger tale that isn't even taking place in Jonathan's universe, if you can believe that. The product of Jonathan Tabbitt's actions wreaks literal havoc on new stories that I'm working on to this day. I really can't give away anything more about it without getting in trouble with my publisher. Let's just say that Alondronon is a very important place in the Apocalypse Theater universe. Don't you like not having me try to sell you a mattress or some program every five minutes? I love podcasts, and I get advertisements. I can deal with them, but I haven't sold my soul to the devil yet. That being said, this podcast is a performance that takes time and effort to bring to you. It's hopefully an enjoyable escape for an hour or so that's not too heavy because I want the same things out of my entertainment that you want. I'm a consumer just like you. I want to be shocked, surprised, and intrigued just the same. These stories will continue to flow no matter what, but if you find value in this sort of entertainment, then head over to our website and hit the donation button on our contacts page. Thanks, and see you next time. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and edited by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support us, throw us a subscribe, good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. You can also buy my books and or audiobooks in the future from ekpublishingmedia.com. Apocalypse Theater is an EK Publishing Media production, 2019.